I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. This is episode 25. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is the witchy Jeff Goad. Hello. And we're very excited this week to have a guest live in the studio with us, Fletcher Redenberg, blogger and critic extraordinaire. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, Fletcher's work can be found on uh, Blackgate.com and his personal blog, Stuff I Like, which is at swordssorcery.blogsite.com. Hi, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you on. <laughs> really looking forward to this. So, Fletcher, um, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, history with uh, role-playing games? Sure. Um, I would say probably goes back to the very beginning, to the White Box books. My friend in Boy Scouts, my friend's brother brought them back from Wisconsin, where he going to college, and he brought them on camping trips, and we, and we he wanted to play. And he sort of half-heartedly taught us. But eventually, you know, when the, um, I guess, what comes out next, the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, we started, my friends and I started picking that up, and we started playing, so probably around 78, 79. And then this guy who had originally brought back the White Box books, he ended up becoming, like, the leading evangelist for Dungeons and Dragons on Staten Island. I have met so many other people who he taught how to play that we never even knew about. You know, he had, like, secret gaming groups across the island. The gaming mistresses. Yeah, exactly. Now, did he actually learn from the three little brown yes. books? Or yes. did, did no. somebody teach him how to play from those his books? Bro- his older brother taught him how to play. Okay. And he and his older brother still played, but he became the man. Because I love those three little brown books, but I cannot imagine picking them up, knowing nothing about Dungeons and Dragons, and actually being able to figure out how to play just from looking at those three books. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I've read them since, and it's 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 it is a bit of a mystery. <laughs> but I think, but I think that, that I think that goes to a lot of of what maybe the old school folks are doing these last ten years. Exactly, is it's rulings, not rules, all yeah. of that that stuff, mm-hmm. and which is exciting. Which is exciting to see, at least from you know my perspective now. Sure. Now you're not currently gaming. I am not. Uh, life and everything, and and the the core gaming group that I was part of, just everything fell apart. Probably. Probably in the early 90s. Okay, in the early 90s. Okay. And, and, and you've done nothing since then? No, one aborted uh, Call of Cthulhu campaign. Okay, okay. Though I am very tempted listening to you guys and some other podcasts to teach my nephews uh, something. Cool. I'm looking for the right game. I think Dungeon Crawl might be a little too much for them at this point. But you can always come out and join us. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> I, I, am, I, am, I have been very, yeah. Yeah, I'm running Mutant Crawl Classics uh, right, uh, an hour or two after we finish recording this today. <laughs> I've got to go to the radio station. Right. After this. Right. Yeah, we're going to be doing an adventure that's uh, inspired by Zardoz. And there you go. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and how old are your nephews, Fletcher? The, uh, the two that I'm looking at are 11 and 13. Oh, oh so perfect. Per- yeah, perfect. And they are, they're excited because of Stranger Things. They're like, oh, that game in Stranger Things? Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Close <laughs> enough. Close <laughs> enough. And so, Fletcher, were you aware in your gaming? I mean, you've been reading science fiction fantasy forever, but were you aware of the Appendix N and the works that were in? We, we were, I was aware of it, um, it was just because it uh, it's, it's in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So I saw it, and it was like, oh, that's interesting. But by that time, by 78 or 79, I had already started reading um, 
Robert E. Howard. I'd read, I think I had read some of the, the Fritz Leiber stuff. Definitely read Tolkien. And a lot of the other books just, they just, did, they weren't available. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Merritt was readily available at that point. Yeah, it seems to become harder to find after the early 70s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not, I think Burn Witch Burn gets a reprint in the mid-90s and that might be it. But So we had read it, so I didn't really think of it as anything special. It was just, oh, these are books that we read. You know, we read, I had read Vance. My dad was a huge Jack Vance fan. And my attic was filled with Vance books. Um, but but I reading when James, I can never say it right, James Malinowski at Grognardia. Malachewski, Malachewski. I have no Grug- idea. Grug- 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 about, about 10 years ago yeah. was probably the first guy to, to look at Appendix N yeah. and the roots of, of D&D. And it, and it was exciting just to read read his posts. And once you started seeing those posts, were you going back and rereading these things and reading ones you hadn't read before? I wasn't yet. I really wasn't yet. It's That's been sort of a gradual thing. Mm-hmm. Um between some other some other folks uh, blogging about Appendix N in the last couple of years, it it seems this this um, you know the steamroller effect took place. We're just all of these at the same time. You've got the old school Renaissance going on in game playing. You've got people looking at well, what what made that old game playing special, or at least trying to figure out if there was something that made it special. Yeah, you know, inspirations that that caused game playing to be the way it was. Um, one of the things I was struck with in your writing, I I really appreciate was that you kind of situate each book in terms of what it means to you now and possibly if you had read it earlier, what it meant to you at the time that you originally read it. Um, it's not just like, oh, this book is cool, got to read it, right? Like, um, <laughs> Thank you. And so, uh, for example, I think that piece that you wrote about your friend Denzel, is that right? Well, Denz- and Denzel yeah. is the guy. Yeah. Denzel was the man right. who taught us how to play d I mean, oh, It's cool. a very short piece, but it's very moving. And Thank you. And, um, he's, yeah. and he's still in Staten Island running games? He's not running games now. He, okay. I don't think he's run games for a while. Because I was going to ask which edition he runs. I doubt he runs D&D anymore. Okay. None of us, every one of us, every one of us ditched D&D yeah. within a couple of years. Okay. Uh, we, we ended up on the hero system. Okay. And we played that to the end. Cool, cool. Yeah, so I, as you were saying, it's just the, the, I think it's important to you know, say this book's like, this meant a lot, but it's not just an exercise in nostalgia. Some of this is, is yeah, I remember being reading this at camp, around the campfire, but sometimes you read some of the books, like we've talked about Lord of the Rings and some of our previous episodes, and yeah. they become richer as we go through life. We can say, oh, this means something to me now. Yeah, so if I want to convince people, I need to really give them reasons. And and I think part of that is is exploring the emotional resonance that I get out of the book from reading it in the past, reading it, rereading it, and where it stands now. And sometimes it's important to go back and revisit the things that you loved when you were young before you recommend it to people. Yeah. Because there were some things that I absolutely adored when I was 15 that were actually really awesome and I really should recommend. But then there were other ones that I loved when I was 15 that I'm like, ooh, that needs to stay in 1995. Yeah, I, I, I ran into that a couple uh, a year or two back. I was going to reread The uh, the Fallible Fiend by Sprague de Camp. And I got about a chapter and a half in. And I wrote John O'Neill, I, I can't do it. I cannot finish this book. It's awful. And then when I reread the, uh, was it the Tritonian Ring a year or two ago, it I just, I hated it. Oh. And this is, a, I mean, I have this beautiful uh, Owlswick hardcover edition I bought at the Old Planet with illustrations by was it James Cawthorn, and it's it's garbage. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's extreme. I apologize. <laughs> and we haven't read either one. Or maybe you have. I've no, not no, read either one yet. And they're both... Not in the far, they're, they're they're pretty close. I right think front loaded. I think it's either this year or the beginning of next year. Yeah, fallible so. theme definitely. Yeah, so. Tritonian ring we went, we might be away from. I mean, uh, DeCamp, we've had some talks about. He's got um, this tendency to maybe hold himself above the material yeah. in a sense. Yes, but I, I do I did and really enjoy the Harold Shea stuff. Yeah, now because it's exactly what it you know it's it's fun. Yeah. it's goofy fun yeah. and and I think Pratt Pratt definitely has a lot. To, sure, to sure. Do with that. 
Cool. Well, the, the, the book that we're here to discuss today is Andre Norton's Witch World. And the edition that I have in my hand right now is this 1974 Ace paperback. And it's got this J.H. Breslow cover. Uh, it's got, uh, what is this? This is, it's got Chorus on the cover here with his falcon, falcon helmet. Uh, and we've also got the dude who's got his little, um, his little bear helmet. Uh, I don't know. It's a cool little cover. What do you guys think? I, I love Breslow. Yeah. Uh, he did a few more Witch World books, and they're equally fun. I think there's a definitely a sort of um, uh, handcraftedness to the pop paperback art of that era that is we're missing now. We yeah. have a very sort of Photoshoppy yeah. sort of one point to the other. Yes, something I've done a lot of posts about. Right. Uh, and Hoy, which version have, uh, are you reading this week? I'm reading the ebook copy. Um, this the standalone one. I got it for ninety nine cents because it was on sale on Amazon. But it's also con- included with the first two books for, I think, six bucks on Amazon. So it's yeah. a good way to get started with the Witch World books, I guess. And which one are you reading for? I have The Gates to Witch World, an omnibus put out by Orb. It's got the first the first two High Halleck books, uh, Witch World and Web of Witch World, and the first, I'm sorry, Escarp books. And the first High Halleck book, I can't read that. Year of the Unicorn. So And, and uh, it's and it's covered. It's got uh, our, our hero, Simon Tregarth, and the unnamed witch. Mm. Right. And that's because uh, to give her name gives power, yeah. the other person power over her. And we do find her, her name at the end of the book. But we, we do. Leave that at the very, very end. Yeah. But we'll discuss that in a yeah. moment. Uh, but before we do, let's look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Okay. Okay, cool. So our word of the day is... Men here. Men here. And the reason why I selected this word is uh, it appears on page 11. And it says, what do you know of Menhirs? And this is before Simon Tregarth has, has traveled to the world of Witchworld or traveled to Escarp. And uh, Simon feels very proud as he says, like, oh, they were stones set in circles by prehistoric men like Stonehenge. And then uh, Petronius is like, well, there were certain stones of great power mentioned in those old legends. Um, but there's one that is rumored to be able to judge a man, determine his worth, and then deliver him to his fate. So the men, men here is kind of a cool word. You find it a lot, I think, kind of in the kind of more Conan-y stories. Uh, but I think because it pay, plays such a pivotal role in this story and also that the word itself kind of becomes its own little adventure that I feel like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great candidate for the Hygaxian word of the day. But Fletcher, you also had one that you wanted to throw into the ring. I did. Uh, matriarchate. Matriarchy. Which um, I'm not quite sure what differentiates it from a matriarchy, but it's it's an explanation of, of how the the country of Estcarp, uh, the, the place that Simon travels to, is is run. Yeah, that Council is one that witches. I almost chose, and I just looked it up. It's a matriarchal form of societal organization. So I guess it's I don't know how this I, I don't know how that's matriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> matriarchy. So she just liked she liked that that word better. It is sort of an. Uh, uh, what's you call it? Or, not ornate. I'm thinking of um, archaic sound. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Definitely mo- less common. So. Yeah. Okay. So um, here we are in the library. What did we think of this book? I had so much fun with this. Cool. Yeah. I don't know. I I didn't really know what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't read any Andre Norton, and a lot of people I know who have read Andre Norton. One thing I've heard many people say is, "Oh, the only thing I've read is Quag's Keep, and it's not very good." That's, 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 that's usually what I hear when I hear people talk about Andre Norton. So I didn't really have very high expectations. But um, I really dug this. How about you, Fletcher? I really love it. Uh, this is the second time I read it. I read it the first time, I don't know, about six or seven years ago. And it's the one 
Andre Norton, which world book I have not blogged about, so now I can do that. <laughs> um, but it's it, it was great. I mean, I noticed there are little things I noticed that bother me this time around um, structurally, uh-huh. but for the most part, I, I love it. It's it's absolute beautiful pulp craziness. Now, sorry, do we know that these were short stories at some point before they were became the novel, or it became a novel? No, this is very... this. In fact, I think these first two books she didn't intend to write any more books. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, which world and web of which world? Okay. And so, what are the things that jumped out at you structurally that were a little off to your, in your um, mind? You know, it, it's it's got that sort of pulp. Um, what's what's the word I'm looking for? There's a lot of coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yes, there, there's a there's a strong degree of coincidence that, and because the move, the book moves so quickly. I mean, my copy is is 175 pages long. Yeah, mine's 222. And I, I hear you. There were there were two moments when you say that that I immediately think of. One that I completely love, and one that's a little like, yeah, I had to kind of like let that one go. But for me, when chorus, uh, when 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 they when they're leaving Soko Keep, when it's exploded, yeah. and um, and they end up in that big storm, mm-hmm. and they wash up ashore, and they happen to wash up ashore right where there's this cave that happens to have the the acts of volt in there yeah. like what a great coincidence but also in some ways i almost wonder like if that was like the hand of fate at play and the the power of volt drawing and them to that i'm glad you say that because I, I think now you make me rethink what i you know my my you know my annoyance at it and because yeah that's definitely one of the sequences sure but then another one though is like at the near, near, kind of near the end when uh when simon Trigarth where he's left sipar and he's now kind of like on that boat in the middle of nowhere, and then he's like picked up by the the, the, by the ship of Escarp. Oh, the, it, the guard. It's a it's a it's like a patrol boat. Yeah, it's like a an Escarp patrol boat. Some of that stuff is a little bit like okay, well that was a pretty nice coincidence. Like that felt a little bit less yeah. like it was like the hand of fate pulling him somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. And I think as you go further into the books, there's there's definitely well at least in the next book, there's more with the acts of Volt and who Volt is and what. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I uh, okay. <laughs> it's, been, it's, it's, just, it's been a while since I uh, since I read the, the rest of them. So. But I hear you. If you go back and you listen to my episode on The Hobbit, I was complaining about that very same thing about Bilbo just happening to find the ring. Yeah. Like, oh, I guess Gollum just happened to drop it in this hallway and Bilbo just happened to find it. And, you know, Daniel Bishop responded to the... the um, left a comment on the on episode the, uh, being like, well, actually, I think that was like the hand of fate at play. And then when I read Fellowship of the Ring, I was like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see yeah. that. So... Now that I've, I'm kind of more tuned into that way of thinking, at least with the ring, I've, I feel like maybe uh, Volt's axe is a similar thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And like I said, Volt, Volt definitely he shows up again, or the character of Volt. And one of the, if I can for a second, one of the cool Please. things about the short stories is the, the short stories. I mean, this book it feels like it was just she just wrote this in a mad rush. She had <laughs> crazy ideas that I'm going to get down there, and especially in the short stories and some of the novels, she explores what is going on. There's a short story. You find out about the Falconers, where they come from, why they're the way they are, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, so she really explores things, and and yeah. yeah. I mean, this would not have been at the beginning of her career because she started writing this in the late '40s, right? But this would still be yeah, before she had really made it big. In I'm sense. I'm not sure. I yeah. I think I think um, I think I think she did it 
did, was pretty big with her her sort of juvenile science fiction. Oh, she's got true. was right. it uh, was it I never Daybreak Daybreak twenty two fifty something yeah. like that. Uh, Starman's Son. Yeah, those uh, are supposed to be great. Right, so that was around uh, the early sixties, and this I, is early, maybe even earlier. Uh-huh. And okay. she'd published so much by even by just by this point, right? And just uh, you, you mentioned that like it kind of feels like she just had a rush of ideas that she had to get out there. Just looking at like the sheer volume of novels she wrote in her lifetime, she de- definitely couldn't have slowly toiled over each novel the way that Tolkien did with his. <laughs> no, <laughs> She no. would have written like six novels. Yeah. Um, but I do think this sort of caught up into, you know, just what was going on in, in, in Sword and Sorcery and, and uh, with fandom. You know, she's, you know, she's a woman writing for, at that point, 30 or 40 years, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe not 40. And, the, and there's a, just a growing and changing audience. And, the, and there's, I, I don't know, more now, people looking that, for women writers more at that point. Right. It seems that actually each of us has come to Andre Norton relatively late, though. I think one of the reasons I hadn't really come to Andre Norton, other than, as you say, Quiet Keep, was that I kind of just associated <laughs> with sort of romantic fantasy. And, you know, a lot of the cover art from the late 90s. And, yeah. you know, so it didn't occur to me that Andre Norton was a sword and sorcery writer. And, same thing. And you, I had read one of your blog posts where you had mentioned that even just the name Witchworld had kind of kept you away from it as it well. It did. It's, it seemed a little twee. Yeah. And um, I think most of the covers I had seen, yeah, were, were more romancy novel, you know, romance covers. And I admit, I was biased. And sure. I didn't pick them up. And it was reading one of her stories in uh, a Lynn Carter collection that just blew me away. And that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about her being a woman and being a female writer. You know, first she was she was writing under the name of Andrew North. Then she was writing under the name of Andre Norton, which she stuck with. So from the very beginning, she's writing under a man's name. And I don't know exactly what her reasons for that were specifically. I think most of us can intuit and assume that she mm-hmm. thought it would give her some kind of an edge in getting published and having where having a woman's name might hold her back. The very first character we meet is Simon. And Simon is, you know, he's like, he's like on the run, like he's being chased. And as soon as he hops through this other portal, the very first thing he sees is this like damsel in distress whose like clothes are like falling off of her, <laughs> you know. And when you first start this, it feels very like traditional pulp in that way. Sure. But then as it continues, you discover that this, this maiden whose clothes are nearly falling off of her is actually this incredibly powerful witch. And that and that when these these like men ride up, she's actually the one who is in charge of them. And that the, the people who have the real power power in this world are women. And then we get further into the story. And the very next section is about a woman who is, you know, absolutely miserable under the oppressive control of her father. Mm-hmm. And the 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 witch is washed up onto their shore. And she ends up cutting off all of her hair, putting on chain mail, and faking her own death. And from this moment on in the forward, when it, if, at this moment on in the novel, whenever anybody refers to that old character of her, she's like, she's dead. Yeah. I am now Bryant. And she like uses like the male pronoun throughout it. So suddenly we have this like really like interesting, like like transgressive novel that's exploring all this gender stuff in a way that was originally delivered in a way that made it seem very kind of boy friendly and very uh, abs- kind of adventure friendly. I, I agree. And absolutely. And, and that is something, again, I saw it first in the short the Witch World short stories. Mm-hmm. She plays a lot on that. Uh, not, not, I shouldn't say play. That's She's really, with Sword and Sorcery, looking at the place of women in a, a pre-industrial, you know, yeah. medieval world. And, it, and it's often miserable. And what characters have to do to escape that. And... It's, it's she's yeah I really like her a lot and I really loved rereading this. And what's also cool too is I feel like, and I, I might be inserting my own uh, I, may, I may be projecting things onto Andre Norton, 
But, you know, here she is as a woman writing in this like male dominated uh, mm-hmm. industry and using this male's name. But like it also seems like, you know, here we have the the witches of Escarp and they've had they have this truce with the Falconers. And the Falconers are this like incredibly, incredibly misogynist society where all of the women are kind of kept in their own separate village and the men just go there and like they breed with them. Yeah, and then twice when, a year. Yeah. And when they have boys, they bring the boys back. And that's the only reason that the women exist. But what's kind of neat, though, is it doesn't feel like Andre Norton as an author is moralizing against them or saying that they're bad or they're evil. They're not. They're no. just people who have, a, who have a different culture that the witches really dislike and yeah. have big issues with. But Andre Norton doesn't seem to really kind of project her voice onto that necessarily in the way it's written. And I wonder if maybe that's her own way of having kind of her own kind of empathy for being a woman in, an alt, in a primarily male-dominated industry, but like not having an issue with the men who dominate the industry. You know, she just kind of understands, like, it's 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 the world that I live in right now, and it sucks, but here I am, and I'm... Well, I was struck, just in general, how uh, he used the word empathy. Empathetic she was, even to the characters who are nominally uh, antagonists, like the two, um, the mistress of the duke, mm-hmm. um, and I forget her name, and the stepmother-to-be of Briant. Uh, Aldous. You know, Aldous, yeah. So I was struck by that. I, I thought that um, also... Uh, so Simon's regard sort of sort of takes sort of a step back at a certain point in terms of his character, but Chorus is very fascinating. He moves yes, forward as a he's character. He's great. And I think also when you're going back to the Falconers for a second, we're seeing the Falconers more or less through Simon's eyes, so there's probably a lot of depth to the culture that, as you say, in one of the later stories, they yeah. talk more about the Falconers. So we just see that part, but maybe there's a whole parallel society of the the women Falconers or the, the women in the Falconer society that is very rich too, that we're just seeing that sort of the external surface of that society. Yeah, and who so. knows? Maybe we'll explore some of that in future future books. And she definitely, yeah, she definitely gives you the sense that there's more going on than you just see on the surface. And yeah. It's one of the things I, I love about her books. I mean, there, there's a lot of implied depth that, and she does it, her prose is good enough that it, it you buy it. Right. Yeah, really, the only people who don't have depth are the colder, which I'm fine with because the one colder we meet, it's so alien, and we have no way of knowing what it's yeah. thinking or what it's feeling or why it's here or what it's doing. We we end up discovering that that the colder come from another world that they've like apparently destroyed or something that they're on the run from, but we don't really we don't have a deeper understanding of them because we it seems like we're kind of not able to. Yeah. But everybody else, it seems like they're characters who we get to see multiple sides of them. Right. Yeah, even the Duke's henchmen who are, you know, bad guys are, oh, still, yes. are still differentiated. They yeah, are. They, you know. um, um, uh, what's it? Uh, Lois, right? Yeah. Uh, her yeah, fa- Lois, her uh, father. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Folk? Uh, Folk. Yeah. yeah. Folk. He, uh, he's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah he's, <laughs> he's a jerk. A bad <laughs> but he's realistically bad. And he doesn't yes. just seem like he's like a, like a mustache twirling villain. No, no. He's, he's you know, he's doing what he's got to do to, to bring up his... his uh, Useless little kingdom and uh, sure. some prestige, sure. Right. And also, you you can even kind of empathize with him to some degree too, because you learn that the only reason he has any control at all is because his daughter is still alive. Yeah. If Lois were to die, then he would no longer have power here. So he's like you. You you may not you may not. You even may not like the guy, but you at least understand why he's yeah. on this desperate and search. He, that's right. And even um, again, what's uh, the 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 Duke of um, Carston? Carston, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Uh, right. But he's a, he's a jumped up mercenary. And yes. you find out, yeah. and when, when, yeah. when horrible things happen, yeah. everyone's like, well, he can't be behind that. He's not that horrible. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's just he's just a guy in it for the money. He's not going to go out and torture and murder, you know, right. women and children, which yeah. is what's going on. Right. He's, he's very pragmatic. 
And so that's why he's doing these things yeah. like trying to marry into, um, you know, Falk's family. Yeah. And, 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 and he's doing what he's, you know, he's not of the nobility. So he's doing what he needs to do to become a part of that society and maintain his perch in that society. So that's, that's as you say, that empathy. Yeah, uh, and, and I definitely, I mean, and I see, I look a little more closely this time. I mean, there's, there is some really great world building, a lot with race. A lot with with gender and uh, she. It's it's just interesting. It's really interesting for a book that is so short, that is so pulpish that it's still it's really. I think it's really thoughtful in in what's going on. I agree with that completely. How to put it together. In terms of, I think one of the other things that's been brought up in the discussion of Appendix N is that there wasn't necessarily a hard line between science fiction and fantasy until relatively recently, at least as far as marketing books, right? Yeah. Um, I so feel like 1980 f- was the year that 80. we decided that, like, from this moment forward, science fiction and fantasy are two completely different things. I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you, it, it's not a hard line, but it seems like around that time, we somehow as a culture decided these two things need to be divorced from one another. Yeah. And so how did you feel with the sort of uh, science and the, you know, from our current day perspective, the science fiction elements and the fantasy elements? How did they Well, mesh? I mean, I love that. I yeah. mean, I grew up reading, reading short story collections of stuff from the 30s and 40s and where, again, that was not uncommon. Yeah. And it, it feels right. It feels right. Um, there's dart guns and, and, and it's good. Simon, Simon does question that. Mm-hmm. How is this possible? How do they have this technology to, was it to light the apartments? Right. right. And, the and they don't know how to make it. Right. Yeah. He, uh, so that I, I like modern it, sanitation. Yeah. Right. He, he goes, it's a medieval city, but they have sewers. Uh, it's, it's, I love it. I love that sort of mix up of, of, well, yeah, we call them genres now before it was just, it was all speculative fiction or fantasy, whatever. Right. Sure. And I kind of love it for the opposite reason is because you love it because that's what you grew up on. I love it because that's not at all what I grew up on. Yeah. I grew up where science fiction and fantasy were two completely different things. You never watched Thundar? Oh, I did. I did love Thundar. But for the most part, there really wasn't, there, there was a very strict sure. division between them. And when there wasn't, people commented on it like Thundar. Thundar yeah. stood out because it was kind of a, a melding of the two. And like He-Man too. Like He-Man, like sure. occasionally they, like, they, they were on a, on a planet in space. But for the most part, it was very separate. Yeah. So it's really refreshing now to go back and read this stuff and see that like there doesn't need to be this hard line in the sand. No, it, it, as long as I think the author thinks about it, yeah. and and at least the author knows the rationale for it, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it feels it feels right. Yeah, that's and great. I, I like even one more element, which is the very beginning is almost a film noir. You know, the, oh, yeah. the, yeah, Simon's yes. on the run. Right, he's it, like it's an, from the third man. Right, and he's an ex-military man. He's been a you know, black marketeer of some sort. And, you know, we don't really get his whole backstory, but we get enough to understand. Sure, we that know that he was perjured against. Right. And, and, uh, he just killed two guys who were out to kill him. Right, yeah. But the worst one is still hunting for him. Yeah. But by page 15, we're already in, already in Witch World, which yeah. is like the, everything just moves so fast. And it's great. There, there's a moment later on, I had forgotten this, and towards the end of the book where he... He's thinking back and he goes, I hadn't felt this way since Berlin. What's Berlin? I barely remember what Berlin is. <laughs> exactly. And um, His connection to that world is already starting to fade. Yeah, he right. was, new memories are being overlaid. Right. I liked also that um, the people of Estcarp, like, they realize it's from another world, but they're not, like, they're not weirded out by it. Like, oh, yeah, those, those things must be normal back on your yeah. world, you know. And the fact that he is, um, I guess, one of the big things in this is that he is developing witchy powers, which men do not have on the witch world yeah. or yeah. up until... So we've been told. Sure, sure. Um, um, but they don't remark on it as being like blasphemous. It's like, well, it's probably because you're from another world. You know? Yeah. Um, 
And we see this trope a lot in Appendix N, you know, Harold Shea traveling through to his other worlds and then also the maker of universes. Uh, but then, I mean, it also goes back to like Wizard of Oz and like um, uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia and things like that. But one thing that I thought was kind of cool about Simon specifically was he's somebody who really doesn't have real ties to his previous world because like he's just he's been on the run for so long yeah. now. And not only does he just escape into some, it's not that he just escapes into some random, uh, some random other dimension. He actually ends up meeting this guy who's able to take him to this place where he's like most destined to be. Yeah, right. Isn't that that's what was it, Petronius? Yeah, Petronius. Right. Yeah. So you will, by, you will go where you deserve to go. Exactly. So it it it, it takes away because I, I know sometimes when I read these stories, I'm like, don't they have family they miss at home? Like, <laughs> why are they so happy to just like like let it all go? But in this, I I, I bought it for those reasons. Yes. I like also that. Um, he comes, he has special powers, he has a he has a role to play in the witch world, but he's not a messiah. He's not a chosen one. No. He's, not, yeah. he's not John Carter. No, right? I, I, I forgot how sort of to the back of events he is till later in the book. Yeah. I mean, he's really a secondary character. Yeah. And um, in a sense, like, Chorus has an interesting balance because he's sort of this malformed, maybe outcast, but he also has a role to play, and yeah. he's the one who actually grabs Volt's axe. And yeah, feels I mean, like he's, he's the no... captain of the guard of Escar. Yeah. I mean, he's the, he's going to be the hero. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was very um, very interesting apropos. And I say it's very interesting because Simon is not passive, but he's also even when he comes there, he's he's not become a super warrior. He's like, oh no, he's still not as good at hand to hand combat. Oh, yeah, with right. The he's he's no better than the you know the kid being taught. Right. You're like <laughs> you know, stick with your gun. Right. Stick with your gun. <laughs> he's, he's good at the stealthy you know sort of commando y stuff. It's sure. kind of implied that maybe he was in like. Special services yeah. or special operations in World War II or something like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Although there is one thing that comes up that I'm curious what you guys think. And we can even – and maybe this is even a branch into the, the gaming side of the conversation – is when he arrived, he didn't know the language. And one thing about the Harold Shea stories that I kind of like is I think that uh, DeCamp came up with kind of a cool workaround with that, which is when you travel to a new dimension, you take on the basic assumptions of that dimension, including yeah. the, 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 the way language works when, when you go there. But that wasn't the case with Simon. He had to come here and he had to learn the language, and he picks it up pretty quick and uh, seems to be pretty fluent almost kind of right away. Yeah. Now, in your mind... Is it um, is it is it lazier writing to have somebody just assume the 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 language when they travel over the dimension? Is it lazier to have them pick up the language right away, or is it actually pretty believable that somebody could pick it up that fast? I don't know. It it for the for the I did I was I was explicitly looking for that. I'm like, how does he learn? Because she makes it clear he doesn't understand what anyone's saying. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of glossed over. Yeah. But, but I do get she's, the book is moving and she, sure. the idea is everything is happening quickly in, the, in, in S-Carp right now. Yeah. So right. she's going to speed it up. And no, we got that with Pellucidar right, as well. Right. You know, he picks up the language pretty right. quick and then suddenly we're not really thinking right. about it. Um, and actually, I have to say this is, you know, stepping outside of the fiction for a minute. Um, in American society, you know, I mean, we have immigrants and people speaking yeah. all languages, but still we're sort of a monolingual culture yeah. and we're not as used to a same place like say Southeast Asia or Europe where people speak multiple languages just as yes. a matter of course. Yeah. And so that people don't think anything of picking up a new language. For us, it's a big deal to learn a new language yeah. in the United States. So. And for Tregarth, who, like you yeah. said, is supposed, probably supposed to be a commander or something like that. Yeah. It's not unbelievable that he would be adept at languages. Yeah. Sure. I'm willing to buy it. And I also don't know how hard or easy it is to pick up another language like that. Like, I don't know if I were an immigrant to the U.S 
U.S. and I moved to a part of, to a part of America where there weren't other people from my country. Like if I moved to, the, to New York and I move into a neighborhood where everybody speaks Russian and I move here from Russia, it might be harder for me to learn English. But if I move here from Russia and I move to a place where nobody speaks Russian, maybe I would pick it up pretty yeah. quick. I'm not really sure. And in terms of like applying that to gaming, like how do you feel about other other characters like picking up languages quickly, or do you only have the languages you have on your starting character this sheet? Is, this is a, um, I mean, we'll come back to the book hut, but the this is a problem with gaming since the very beginning. No <laughs> role playing system has actually ever come up with a good system, a language system. GURPS tries, they fail. D and D just says you know this language, and if you're intelligent, it's this high. You have this other language. It doesn't have any provision for you learning another language, uh -huh. new languages. Sure. Right? So well, I'm sure if you if you dig in like the the second edition Dungeon Master's yeah. Guide, there's probably some overly right. wrought. Well, right. Let me qualify that. Uh, the D and D that matters. The first edition. Oh, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. Uh, but uh, in my experience, there's not been any single role playing system that has worked that well. Because is it a skill where you have levels of proficiency? Is it just a thing? You know, you either know a language or you don't. Is it binary? Um, you know, yeah, because you're not doing skill checks. Right. I think in the hero system, you you depending how many points you put in a language was how proficient you were. Right. In it. Okay. But but then yeah, once you got new, more experience, technically you could just buy a new language. Right. Um, you know, and I know Call of, <laughs> Call of Cthulhu or the room. Uh, you know, it's percentile based. You know, sure. GURPS just had like three levels of proficiency. And then uh, it's what's realistic and what's fun. Right. You know, and the same, you can apply that to gaming and you can apply that with, with Pulp Fiction. Right. You know, it's like, sure, realistically, maybe he would have had a really hard time and he would have been really accented and would have gotten yeah, a lot of words wrong. Do you want wrong. a chapter worth of Simon learning? Yeah. And do you also want to deal with him, like, struggling with the language for the entire novel? Like, probably not. That'd probably yeah. get really old. It's like when we read Three Hearts and Three Lions, mm -hmm. Hughie has this like really thick accent and every single line of Hughie's is written with like all these apostrophes and you're missing. <laughs> and it's frustrating to read that. Right. Like, I think that's uh, that's true. I and mean, we've moved away from, and I could be wrong, I'm not seeing the entire spectrum of fiction, but it's it's less common to write in dialect now because a tendency to maybe think of that as condescending or potentially, you know, to use the, the P word problematic, especially if we're talking about real world. Uh, you know, languages and dialects. Yeah. So. It's also just problematic to just, like, look at the page and I just don't think move we're your used eyeballs to, over it. Yeah. I don't think we're used to reading it that much. I mean, yeah. I mean, with Lovecraft, it's, you know, re recreating New England accents. I mean, I don't know how accurate they are if you read them out loud. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they seem good. But, yeah, it's just, it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, certainly if you get into uh, certain parts of uh, Maine and stuff like that, you can still hear something that's resembling the Lovecraft, uh, the Lovecraft dialects. But, you know, actually, I get that a lot, too, because I'm from Boston. Like, you don't have a Boston accent. It's like, not everybody. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is when I first moved to New York and people would ask me where I'm from and I'd say Montana, they'd be like, oh, you don't have a southern accent. <laughs> be like, you're right. Montana's not in the south. <laughs> But you're actually, you're actually a, the rarest of all creatures, a, a native New Yorker. So. Oh, I am. I am. I am four hundred years of New Yorker on my oh, dad's so side. Knickerbocker. <laughs> yes, I, literally, literally. Wow. Yeah. My mother's side bore off the boat, squareheads. <laughs> <laughs> so Andre Norton is listed in the appendix N, but Gygax does not give us a specific title to read or a specific series to read. Um, oh. So I went with Witchworld. I, th I thought that would be a good place for us to start. Um, so I don't know how specifically how much Witchworld specifically had to uh, do with the inspiration of D and D, but I would imagine that of her work, Gary had to have been a fan of Witchworld. 
Must have been. I can't imagine not. Yeah. And while you guys were reading this, was there anything in here that seemed super D&D to you? Um, uh, quite a number of things. I mean, the Axe of Volt right there is a, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not told what it does yet, but it's clearly a magic weapon of some yeah. sort. Um, I feel like, um, we mentioned this in the reading group, I feel like uh, when Briant puts the armor, that's literally when she levels up and becomes a first level fighter. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know? that's, a great, that's a great point. You know, and, and she knows all the uh, secret doors and passageways in the castle. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh yeah, and there are lots of, there are actual lots of, lots of dungeons in this. And oh, that yeah. was one of the things that when I, when I first started this project and first started reading all these Appendix N novels, I assumed that I was going to discover that the adventuring party and the dungeon wasn't actually something you were going to see much of in the Appendix N, and I was wrong. I see a lot <laughs> of adventuring parties and a lot of dungeons, and I see both a lot, quite, uh, quite a bit in Witch World. Sure, right. You've got, um, where do they go? At the, uh, was it uh, Sipar? Mm-hmm, yeah. And they go into the basements of Sipar. And, yeah. I mean, that's great. I, I had totally forgotten that from my... my previous read of this and that's and also when when Bryant and the unnamed witch go into the uh, the basements of Verlaine when they're mm-hmm. trying to escape and there's some like unspeakable power under oh, there yeah. right. that like she's sensitive to and like they can hear it breathing but they're like in the dark so they don't know what it is that is one thing I encounter a lot though is there's a lot of dungeons where nobody has any light source in these <laughs> novels and that never ever ever happens in Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> no, no <laughs> somebody always has a torch or a lantern um <laughs> The uh, three henchmen of the Duke, I also felt, were retired adventurers. Yeah. Because right? the Duke was an adventurer. He was oh, a yeah. mercenary, sure. right? Hey. And yeah. so these are right. all... Right, you get to that point, you get your own uh, kingdom. Right? right, so these are ninth level, and we think that they're baddies because we're seeing it from the perspective of Briant, but they're just, you know, ninth level murder hobos, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, right. So. And this is, this is clearly a novel about magic. It's got the word witch in the title. How about the magic system in Witch World? How would that apply to D&D or vice versa? Hmm. Well, it's not Vancean, but um, you have magic components, like the little wooden boat that the witch, oh, yeah. who we find out later on, yeah. uses to cast the illusion of this fleet of ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's verbal components and somatic components. Mm-hmm. They, they sing or they speak, and they move their hands rituals, and they gesture. There's rituals. Uh, the, whole, the little mannequins at the end. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, actually, one of my favorite bits, actually speaking of magic, was when, again, the witch is in, um, again, wherever the Duke's capital is, and the mistress comes, and she doesn't use any of her powers at all. She actually uses just pure psychology, just yeah. like any of the, you know, fortune tellers that we see here in New York City, just come into my parlor, you know? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> two of the things that I I would like, what, what, what am I trying to say here? There were two things that happened with the magic in the novel that I think D&D does a poor job of emulating. And one is there were moments where they're clearly um, improvising with their magic. You know, the, specifically like like Simon Trigarth. There's the moment where he is confronted by what I'm going to go ahead and call oh. psionics. And uh, suddenly like the psionics of the colder has like pushing him against a yeah. wall. He's never used magic at all. He doesn't know any spells. He's never studied any of this. But he like summons up the power to release him from this. And also, I don't know if, like, you, you brought up the magical ships. Mm. Is that a specific spell she learned that she knew that she had studied? Or was she just kind of improvising the magic that she needed in that moment? And D&D doesn't really have a good system for improvising magic and just kind of letting it shape itself. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Um, what's your thought on that? Uh, I, I know you switched to champions, and well, that's very promising. And and exactly, that's uh, exactly where I was thinking. With, with with the hero system, you just make up your spells however you want to make them up. Really? Well, you have you have points. Okay. And you buy effects, and you can attach um, to to lower the cost. You you can attach uh, disadvantages. Okay. So if you have to use components, that's say a point off. So if you lose the components, you can't cast the spell. If you have to do hand gestures, can your you, hands... I'm sorry. Can you do that on the fly, or you're deciding no, these in character? You creation? cannot do it on the fly. And okay. The, and you and I don't know anyone. Who, I don't think with rules, it, it's how would you do that on the fly? It's hard. I mean, you it could. would have to be rulings, not rules. Right. It's kind of like how in Dungeon Crawl Classics, the the cleric has the spell Divine Aid, and basically what it is is you're just asking your god for a miracle. Right. Okay. And they do have a they do have a, a pretty simple mechanic for right. that that I like. I can see one way you could do it in Hero System, though, which is that you don't spend all your points. So if you keep a few points in reserve, sure, you can say, I'm going to create this new spell here. And then uh, have that's it actually, that's a clever idea. I like right. that. Uh, right. I and wish then we had thought of that 30 says, years ago. I just said, okay, what's your spell that you're going to create with the three points that you have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's how you would do that's that. A really sh- that's a, no, that's a really good idea. Yeah. And the other thing is kind of maybe more of an aesthetic thing, but um, in Witch World, when the witches do cast magic, or when, when they do cast spells they often get really exhausted and fatigued afterwards. And there is one time where it specifically says, what they guard within is not spent lightly, which I really liked. And I, I feel like we see that with Gandalf too. There's there's oftentimes we see wizards who when they cast spells, it makes them physically weaker. Yeah. And that's the reason why they don't cast spells all the time. Mm-hmm. And aesthetically, I really like that. In Dungeons and Dragons... They don't cast spells all the time because they only have the one slot yeah. and they don't want to expend it. In Dungeon Crawl Classics, they don't cast it all the time because they don't want to like end up getting majorly corrupted. Mutated, <laughs> right. So different systems come up with different ways of doing it, but I'm kind of surprised that we don't see more systems where like a wizard just loses hit points um, or or stamina points. Right. By that would be more like GURPS or RuneQuest where they yeah. have a power statistic. Yeah. And, and um and I think you could actually have uh, fatigue effects and again in hero system you could yeah, say okay, I'm one, I can't I just can't remember. it's been so long right yeah. you could say that this power has fatigue effects um, not. And that would then lower the cost of the power. So if you could just yeah. use it at will, it would cost full price, and yeah. then you know it's very expensive. Yeah, actually, actually, I think you're right. I yeah. think you're right. Yeah. And speaking of GURPS, there actually was an official Witch World supplement for I have GURPS. I've seen it. It is awesome. Is it? It is. It. It is. It is. It's a lot of fun. It. It gives you everything in context. All the stories. All the things other people wrote. Mm-hmm. A full history of both parts of Witch World. Um, all the ca- stats for all the characters, yeah. all the all the th- monsters. It's it's a lot of fun. Cool, cool. Do you have a copy or no? No, no. no. That was like eighties or nineties, I think. I think it was um yeah, like late eighties, early nineties. It, yeah. it was GURPS first editions and never made the third edition. So it's it's probably one of those rarities. And now that we mentioned that you know the price on eBay is going to go up to ninety dollars <laughs> a copy. Oh, I'm sure because we we have that kind of leverage. Cool. <laughs> well, our millions of listeners. Well, our, our, our tens of listeners. But well, we 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 beat each other up on eBay. Oh, <laughs> that is true. Yeah, sad. there there have been moments where we discovered that the person we were bidding against was the other. Oh, <laughs> Very um, O. Henry-esque. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. But yes, I really, I, I think I said earlier, I wish I had read this. This is a book I wish I had read back when we played D&D. Yeah. Or when I, when I gamed more. There's just, it's just, there's so many things to steal from it. The, yeah. You know, the, the Falconers, the Calder. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just the way, the, I don't know, I, I. I'm yeah. Rambling. Also, one thing I liked is I also think there's a lot that you can steal from this, not just for Dungeons and Dragons, but also for like Gamma World or Mutant Crawl Classics. Oh, yeah. Because the colder, although it's not post-apocalyptic, 
here we have technology in a fantasy setting. We have these people from another world and we have super science in this. Yeah. And we have w what I'm going to call psionics. And it, a lot of the, the, the colder really reminded me of the enemies in, have you read Hyro's Journey? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A while ago, but yeah. So I loved that book. And the enemies in this, in a, the colder remind me a lot of those guys. And in Hyro's journey, Hyro and the, the the baddies who I'm forgetting what they were called, um, circle or something, like the brotherhood, the brotherhood, something like that. Yeah. 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 Anyways, they like they all had the same kind of magic, the, like their yeah. psychic powers. But here in Witch World, it's very clear that magic and the mental powers that the Colder have are not the same thing. You can use one to protect yourself yeah. from the other, but they are very separate and that, disciplines. That, and that's interesting. I mean, yeah, how many? I guess some some RPGs where you've got different schools of magic. Yeah. But it's really more a question of effects. Well, and in AD&D, psionics and magic were yeah. two different things. Yes. So, so there you go. But but what, otherwise, you generally have systems seem to... I don't know. Magic seems to be the same, no matter what the effects are. I'm yeah. an illusionist. I'm a necromancer. I still go through the spells the same way. Yeah. Right? So and and especially, specifically hero system, you just, again, would say, this is magic or it's psionic, but literally the power is built the same way. Yeah. And yeah, so that's a question. So this is, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it makes it very clear. So maybe that's it. Maybe I mean, do we know where Gygax got psionics from? I don't. I would imagine, I think it primarily probably came from Hyro's Journey. Right? Oh, okay. Um, but it, yeah, certainly wouldn't be exclusive because they definitely had psychic powers in other books, but yeah. that seems yes. to be the one that's the closest to um, as was written in the game. Okay, right? but I would also imagine that Sterling Lanier read Witch World because Witch World was very big around the time that he was writing Hyro's Journey. And it really seemed, I, I can see, I can imagine somebody reading Witch World and being inspired by it and then that turning into Hyro's Journey. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong, who knows, but. I, have you read the sequel? I've not. I remember, I remember liking them a lot. Yeah. I remember liking them a lot. Do you, um, so just talking about Witch World being inspiring, but do we see Witch World as inspiring fantasy in a broader sense, or is it its own little sort of stovepipe, you know, of of fiction? You know, do is, do we see other fiction that we think is inspired by the Witch World? Maybe not the first Witch World book, mm -hmm. but as they go along, definitely the the introduction of of, for want of a better phrase, strong female characters. Mm -hmm. She really kicks that in, and a lot of the short stories you see that. Yeah. Where and and I think she might be one of the first people. Maybe her and C.J. Cherry mm -hmm. are doing that in the late '60s, early '70s. Right. Yeah. And th there was a real lack of that at the time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, and now it, it's very common. I mean, it reflected the readership, but mm -hmm. it, yeah, um, the readership was changing. Sure, but it's like oftentimes the the arguments that people have like for diversity is the idea that the more diverse you have representation, the more new kinds of people yeah. you're going to draw in. Sure. And certainly, I think once you start writing fantasy fiction with strong female characters, the more women start reading this stuff. Yes. And all it does is grow your base. Yeah. Well, and I think she's definitely a big, a huge part of that. Yeah. And, and kind of, and I think maybe a little forgotten. Yeah, I mean, she's not like in the. I mean, her books are all in print, or like electronically, but she's yeah. not in the forefront of the conversation right now. No, right? she's not, and yeah. it's it's I I it's kind of a shame. It is true, and oftentimes I find that when I'm scouring used bookstores for my appendix and gems, it seems like there's often lots of Andre Norton books available. She wrote a lot. She wrote a lot, and but there are also other people who wrote a lot whose stuff never stays on the shelf, yeah. and yeah. her her stuff 
can tend to linger on some shelves, I've noticed. Yeah. And again, maybe that's the the title is throwing people off, you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, um, what does it mean? You know, so yeah, what, what does the word witch mean to you at the moment? Well, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the Halloween witch. Right. Yeah. And it's definitely not that in these books. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. Um, I think also, uh, as far as gaming, I think this is also an interesting idea of world building that's not specifically sort of high fantasy faux medieval. Um, yes. But it's also not so far away that it's like an exercise in sort of anthropology, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, but even, again, in a very compact book, she makes some very interesting uh, implications about society. One of the reasons why that Escarp is both powerful but also assailed is because if the witches believe that if they have sex, they lose their power. So yeah. that the, the truly powerful witches never have families, never procreate. And so therefore, Escarp becomes a, you know, depopulated. Yeah. And so that's why they have to have these buffer states like the Falcon Warriors and yeah. all these other alliances. And in fact, that's alliances. The, uh, one of their enemies, Karst, yeah. had been like them. Yeah. And it just over time, the, the old race, oh, the magical race, just was subsumed into this larger population of uh, pirates who landed on the coast. And we did run into the, the sewing wench who mm-hmm. came to Lois mm-hmm. and kind of specifically gave her that prophecy. And like she mentioned that right. like she had been one of the witches of Escarp, but she right. had been raped when right. she, when she shipwrecked on the, on the land yeah. and lost her powers. But she was like telling her, like she was basically prophesizing like the, the woman who's coming on that ship right now, she's a great power and she's going to change your life forever. Seek her out. <laughs> and like, I also thought that was a really cool example of like using like prophecy in your gaming as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. ways you can interject that into your games. Right. It's 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 explicit that it's going to change, but not how it's going to change. So yeah. you're not going to not going to yeah. lock the the fiction into um, right. no railroading. Private. Yeah. yeah. No exactly. railroading. It, it points no, you no... in a direction. You can go there or mm-hmm. not. Not not but... private drama in yeah. the sense of like you know the GM has a narrative in their head that you know cannot be deviated yeah. from or yeah. just amusing themselves. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was quite effective. And I know that Simon's, uh, you know, when we read this later on, I haven't read them, but I know that he is going to be an agent of change or his, yeah. you know, for which world and yeah. other things are going to Definitely happen. the next book. I, you read this and I feel like you have to pick up the next book. Whether you finish the rest of the series or not, you've got to read Web of Which World. Okay. Oh, yeah, we definitely will. Yeah. 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 One other thing that I thought in terms of gaming that really kind of leaped out of the page for me was the idea of the blank shield. You know, as Mm. they're traveling around, these are people who their shields didn't have the heraldry of some specific kingdom that they were supporting. And because of that, they were often looked at with distrust. And I thought that was something that might be interesting to inject in your gaming Mm. as well, especially if you've got a campaign where you're traveling from kingdom to kingdom and the kingdoms are at war. If that's something, if that's the kind of game you're playing where you've got kingdoms at war, and if it's not immediately apparent who you're allied with when you're walking through this kingdom, it's going to raise a lot of eyebrows. And so then that, that kind of leads you to an interesting question for your characters. Like, do they pretend to be under a banner they're not? Mm. Or do they just accept the fact that they're going to be questioned everywhere they go? Well, right, yeah. Chorus and, and Simon coming back to Car City... Like, we, if we're not signing up mm-hmm. with the Duke, he's going to look askance at us. Yeah. So they have to come up with a plan. Right. Yeah. Right. So that was one thing I thought would be fun to steal. Cool. Yeah, I like the, the, the there's a lot of social interaction. I mean, it's an adventure, but there's a lot of social interaction yeah. in this book. You know, um, Chorus has his has his doubts about, or, or his 
anger at his you know station in life, yeah. but he's also completely locked into defending Escarp because they're the only place that have accepted him. Yeah. Right. Even though he knows that he is still not going to be truly fully accepted there. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of depiction of the city, the capital city of Karst, and uh, specifically when they basically have the pogrom, that's incredible when they start oh. blowing the horns. That's just like very terrifying. Oh, you know, yeah, the thrice horning. Thrice horning, and they have to go underground and try to escape. And, and, and um, that's it. I mean, and that's, you know, ethnic cleansing is, is pretty heavy duty stuff for a pulp book written in, what, 63, right? Yeah, 64. I mean, I think, yeah. you're not, I mean, that's one of the many things that, that, that I love about this book. I mean, there, again, yes. there's, there's a, a depth and a, and, um, a reality to it right. that is lacking a lot of times. Right. And she does it in a way that is really affecting without being gratuitous. Mm-hmm. You know, like George R. R. Martin, I love the I love the Game of Thrones novels. Yeah. Um, but they're extremely gratuitous in sexual <laughs> violence and in violence in general. Well like here, like you've got you've got rape in these stories. You've sure. got you've got genocide in these stories. You've got like these these bands of people who are going around and just like causing hor- like doing horrific acts to innocent people. Right. Yeah. We don't know the details at right. some exactly. point with Simon and, and his gorilla band. Yeah. The sure. Victims so they come across. Sure. Yeah. It's we're not hit we're not hit heavily over the head with it, but we're aware that it's happening and it's and it's affecting us emotionally as readers. Right. Or at least it was for me. Right. Oh, and the the loss of free will. Essentially, the zombies who oh. attack Soul Car Keep. Yeah. You know, yeah. Right? yeah. And, and I mean, that's terrifying when they realize you know we've sent men and none of our spies have come back. Yeah. And then they I think they some of the men they find are right. some of their spies. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah. I mean that's terrifying. And this, and also, I thought she did a great job of kind of giving us the perspective of other people in terms of like at first we see them, we think that they're just foreign armies. Then we think that they're like slaves who have been turned into armies. Then they were saying that they're possessed. Yeah. And that was the that was kind of the belief for a big chunk of the novel. Now we know that they weren't really possessed because then later on they're talking about how like every man has like kind of three essential components, body, mind, and spirit. And what the cold they were doing was erasing the spirit yeah. and just kind of sending out these like living zombies. Mm. And the, uh, when we see the laboratories, it definitely has this resonance of, I don't know, like Mengele, Joseph Mengele yeah. experiments on it. Sure. So sure. Crazy mad, evil mad science. Right. And, right. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, Andre Norton had lived through, you know, the cockpit of the middle of the 20th century, which was, you know, the bloodiest time, one sure. of the bloodiest times in our history. So all of that would have had, you know, sure. resonance. Yeah, know. yeah. So. Cool. Um, well, I think we've reached a point where we're kind of near the end of the episode. Okay. So before we wrap up, are there any kind of like burning thoughts that you guys have that you want to chat about before we finish this up? Well, I'm definitely excited to read more because as if you, as you say, this is sort of just like the teaser. And it sort really of like is. The, the sort and I think she gets, she's just a better writer after this book. I think mm-hmm. she created what she wanted to create and now she's really going to feel comfortable to run with it. So yeah, I'm I'm in I'm in on the ride on this one. So that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I think I'd like to to add before we wrap up is I really like how in this novel the colder or an an enemy that they really don't know how to deal with. They don't follow the rules no. of their campaign world. You know, they've got <laughs> they've got planes, they've got unnatural walls of fog. Submarines. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. And I think you can use super science or you can do something completely different, but I think that if you're looking to really surprise your players in your gaming, try to think of ways that you can do that that's outside of what's written in kind of the like the magic system or that's written in the the yeah. the, the, the the presumed setting that you're in. Mm. You know, step outside that. By the way, it just made me think, do we think that maybe the colder or sort of the representation of um 
I mean, not super literalist, but sort of like what people thought communism was at that time, you know, because it's just a, the Iron Curtain, this blank wall. We don't know what's going on behind, behind I'm not that. Sh- I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I know I know the the rest of the story of the colder, and I don't yeah. want to give anything away, but uh, <laughs> that's interesting. I, I'll have to think about that. Hmm. Huh. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, you know, but yeah, the world building, just laying the groundwork, but still having an effective story. It's not, it's not an info dump. Right, it's not. No, oh, not at all. Right, it's like we're in the story, but she then, does a great. We we only find out what the characters know when they learn it themselves, which I adore. I mm-hmm. love that. Sure, I had forgot the whole chorus and Bryant stuff, and it's totally oblivious to to, to Simon, and as it is to us. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> totally. Okay. Uh, any last thoughts on your, on, on your part, Fletcher? Uh, no, this was great. Thank you yeah. for inviting me. Yeah, oh, thank you so much for being on here. Well, you've, had, you've had a lot of uh, great insight that's been fun to, thank to, you. It's, it's, it's to definitely, explore. Definitely been a pleasure. Uh, okay, so um, coming up next uh, will be uh, Lord Dunsany's King of Elfland's Daughter. And then after that, we'll be doing Edgar Rice Burroughs' Pellucidar. Um, if you want to uh, interact with us, you can uh, email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, we also have a live uh, book club, so that's um, meetup.com slash dccnyc. That's it. <laughs> okay, I always mess that one up. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, hit us up. Uh, we're also on iTunes, SoundCloud, all the normal uh, podcast platforms. Anything else you want to add, Jeff? Yeah, I'll add that we are going to be setting up a Patreon soon. We are still trying to figure out what the different levels are going to be and what they're going to include. One thing we're thinking of including is a virtual book club. And if you have any ideas as to things you might like to see us offer, if we were to have a Patreon or any ideas about us doing a virtual book club, please send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Great. Okay, so uh, Fletcher, it's been a real pleasure. We'll hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thank you, guys. All right. So see you in Stacks. Thanks for reading. Read on. The library is closed.